Hey there everyone, it's James Lindsay. Welcome to a very special episode of the New Discourses podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be, I guess, announcing, you probably will have heard by now, depending on what I've done, letting loose anyway, on the idea, the fact, fact, that there is a um, new book coming out by me soon that's going by the title of Race Marxism, The Truth About Critical Race Theory and Praxis. Uh, publishing it through New Discourses, so it's not with some major trade publisher or anything like that. So I appreciate any support you can give, any support you can give to it, because um, not going through the usual channels to get this out. The goal is to get it out quickly, uh, rather than bogging it down in the long production process. And so what I want to do is kind of introduce this book, tell you a little bit about it, hopefully get you excited to want to read its complete argument and uh, run along with that and do what you can with it. So in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to give you a little bit of a taste of what this book is about. I'll warn you, it's long. It is, in fact, um, over 100,000 words. It's obviously about critical race theory, um, both in theory and in praxis, which is to say how it is put into practice in conjunction with theory. Praxis is this like three-step process where theory inspires action, action inspires reflection, reflection sp inspires modification to the theory. So you can actually also say that praxis is practice with reflection where the mirror or the speculum involved is theory, a theoretical lens, if you will, as they've said, you can think of it as a mirror. And so This book is supposed to outline what critical race theory is, where it comes from, how it works, and some stuff we can do about it. And it's not succinct because the story is long. The exciting part about this book is that um, I didn't believe when I started to write it. I started to write this book. I did not believe that, that critical race theory is race Marxism. Let me finish my sentence. When I started to write it, when I started to write this book, I was slated, and you will see these videos coming out soon too, and, and, and I was slated to do a workshop series on critical race theory in Tampa, Florida, which I did in July of last year. And as I started to prep the five lectures that I was going to give for that series, I thought to myself, why don't I just write this down for a couple of reasons? One is it would be a good book and it's a needed book. And secondly, knowing my own personality, once I've said a thing, I don't want to say it again. So once I say this in the workshop publicly, I'm going to have zero desire to write it down. Somebody's will write it down first. So I wrote roughly in rough draft form, the first 80 to 85,000 words of this book in the 10 days preceding the workshop, delivered the five lectures based on it. Uh, it turns out I wrote it in six chapters. The first two chapters were the first lecture. That should actually be out on YouTube by the time this thing comes out. So you probably will have seen that already. There are four more, five in total, that follow the track of the book. So if you want even more in-depth information, at least as I thought about it back in July when I delivered those, those lectures, those workshop lectures, definitely check those out. And the book Race Marxism is basically me taking a flesh out my thoughts approach to the notes for that series of lectures fleshing those thoughts out at book length and then adding to that as I needed to, cleaning up the argument as I needed to in order to do it. So I'll go over the uh, table of contents and talk about the book a little bit. I'm actually going to read the introduction to you as well here on the podcast. But uh, first, 
I'm just going to read. The first chapter is titled Defining Critical Race Theory. So everybody says we can't define critical race theory. Nobody who criticizes critical race theory can define it. So we're going to define critical race theory. I'm not interested in defining crap on on terms that they control. So we're going to define it my way. So I offer immediately very first lines of the book, uh, three definitions, critical race theory, noun, one, calling everything one wants to control racist until it is fully under your control. That's it. That's all you need. Critical race theory is if you want to control something, you call it racist until you control it. That's all it is. Two, a Marxian conflict theory of race. That is race Marxism. That's the title of the book. The entire 100,000 words is a long defense of that claim and explanation of that claim. And three, a belief that racism created by white people for their own benefit is the fundamental organizing principle of society. And that's, of course, the other two are real, but this is the real, real functional definition of critical race theory. And I, I, I really do want to focus on that idea of it being a belief, a belief system, in fact, a religion. It's not a very good religion. It's bad religion. But a belief that racism created by white people for their own benefit is the fundamental organizing principle of society. So those are the definitions of critical race theory that I give. The book is dedicated to defending those definitions and explaining that, in fact, we are dealing with race Marxism. So I'll read to you the introduction as by way of giving away some of the book to get you extra excited to want to buy and read it or share it. Um, I just try to read. The, I, it's hard for me to read my own writing and not embellish as I go and to think about how I could have worded things better. But the book is finalized. So here's where we discover typos. Together, in public, it'll be fun. So the introduction reads, if you already know what critical race theory is, the purpose of this book is to cement, refine, and deepen what you already know about it, and to place what you know about it beyond any doubt. By the way, what I mean there is that it is race Marxism. You know it is. Everybody who's thinking about it knows that it's actually Marxism using race. But just to make that really clear. If you're newer to critical race theory and are just beginning to find out what it is, buckle your safety belts and try to hold on. This book uniquely provides a deep and scholarly but totally unvarnished explanation of critical race theory from the perspective of someone who truly understands it and doesn't believe a bit of it. The gap it fills is an important one, too. All existing deep engagements with critical race theory are almost totally useless. They either come from biased cheerleaders who present it in an unrealistically positive light, or from naive scholars who can't see the ideological forest for the philosophical trees that compose it. This book is the first comprehensive attempt at a remedy to this civilization-threatening problem, and it has been written perhaps only just in time. The underlying premise of this book is simple. We should not attempt to cure what we don't understand, and attempting to cure critical race theory is an obligation of every person in this world who wishes to remain free. Therefore, the purpose of this book is to aid you in understanding critical race theory for what it is, a belief system that can be summarized entirely in two words, which are given as the title of this volume, Race Marxism. It is also to encourage you to understand the need to resist this scourge against the free people of the world, and humanity, and hopefully to take smart strategic steps to stop this monster before it does the damage it will inevitably do if it is not halted, and soon. Understanding comes first. 
Therefore, this book begins with an attempt to define critical race theory both in my own words and in its. This task, we are told by its adherents, is impossible for those who don't embrace the theory. This is a typical Marxian trick, as you will see. The job here is done well. The first chapter defines critical race theory in the usual approach, through explanation, and the second is given to defining it in terms of its beliefs. The third and fourth add the historical philosophical context that cements the claim that critical race theory arises from Marxist thought and its predecessors in an undeniable way. The fifth chapter proceeds from the maxim that critical race theory is as critical race theory does and explains the praxis of CRT, the theory put into practice as every Marxian theory must by definition. The point, after all, of understanding the world is to change it, so Marx himself tells us. The final chapter offers some suggestions about what we can begin to do about the problem of critical race theory. The analysis in this book is thereby offered <clears throat> excuse me. The analysis in this book is thereby offered humbly to the world and its free citizens as a means of understanding and resisting this terrible ideology at a crucial moment in history, where it threatens us all in a way far bigger than most of us realize. As the author, I wish to make clear that I did not come to the conclusions of this book easily and in fact resisted for many years the central contention of this book, that critical race theory is race Marxism, until the evidence overwhelmed me. It is my hope that those who read it will find it not only helpful but useful in turning back this advancing tide before it is too late. As I write this in mid-August of 2021, I am optimistic that this is possible thanks to the valuable work that many have produced and put into action over the last few years, often at a great personal sacrifice. I am honored to have contributed to this, and I am humbled by the excellent work others have done and continue to do in this incredibly important endeavor. So that's the end of the introduction, and since that was written in August 2021, and I've left it there since, as you heard, and now I'm speaking in January 2022, I'm much more optimistic that critical race theory is um, satisfactorily under attack to do it tremendous damage. And I do think that we're likely to be in pretty good shape. And I think that this book is going to help quite a lot with that. In fact, I, I say humbly over and over again, but if I don't say, if I don't mind saying so myself, I think this book is the last word that needs to be said on critical race theory and what it is. And it's just a matter of um, either digging more deeply into it for academic yucks or, more importantly, practically eradicating it from our society that's left in front of us. And hopefully the contents of this book, whether my suggestions on what we can do about it or not, uh, are good. Hopefully the contents of this book will help achieve that. So the table of contents includes, first, that introduction I just read to you, followed by chapter one, defining critical race theory. You heard the three definitions that I offer spend the rest of that chapter elaborating upon those. Chapter two, what critical race theory believes. You just heard that. Um, I think that's a very important chapter. It's by far the longest chapter in the book, uh, detailing 13 key belief points of belief for critical of critical race theory, trying to explain to people, these are the fundamental tenets of critical race theory. This is really what critical race theory is about. And in fact, throughout this book, many people will like this and other people will very much not like it. There are extensive, long 
block quotes from the original literature of critical race theory and other literature so that you can understand that it really is being represented for what it is and then explain for what that implies because they don't usually come out and just say this is race Marxism because they don't want people to know that. Chapter three, the proximate ideological origins of critical race theory. Proximate is a fancy word that means close to. Um, so the nearer ones. In other words, in that chapter, what I discuss, and I'll talk a little bit more about each of these chapters as I get through this podcast. Um, I talk about how critical race theory arises as a clear fusion of um, postmodernism and neo-Marxism. And in fact, other movements that sprang up out of the new left, including the academic left, black liberationism, black feminism. It's not quite right. Black liberationism and feminism were sort of their own things, and they got infused with neo-Marxism. But at any rate, it's primarily a fusion of postmodernism and uh, neo-Marxism with some other elements and influence through things like critical pedagogy, which is education theory as well. And so this is basically looking at the last hundred years this chapter three, Proximate Ideological Origins, and explaining what neo-Marxism and postmodernism are. Obviously, for those of you who have read my previous significant work, Cynical Theories, uh, which has, by the way, a very recently released um, reader-friendly, we call it, version, uh, adaptation by a woman named Rebecca Christensen that did that uh, for Helen and I, or with Helen and I, uh, called Social Injustice. So if you've read Social Injustice, which just came out, which you should pick up if you want a re reader-friendly version that your, say, teenager kids are going to be able to understand or whatever uh, about what Cynical Theories is about, or if you've read Cynical Theories, you already know the postmodern influence. Chapter 5 of that book is about critical race theory and the postmodern influence that led to the creation of critical race theory. What we don't talk about in cynical theories or social injustice, although we, I worked a little bit of it in social injustice, is the neo-Marxist element. And so this chapter, chapter three, spends a lot of time talking about neo-Marxism and its predecessor, cultural Marxism. And basically what I do, if you've heard the podcast here on, the, on well, there, I think there's like two or three of them actually that I hit this same topic from different angles. If you've heard where I talk about the rise out of Marxism, of cultural Marxism into neo-Marxism or critical Marxism as another name for it, into identity Marxism, and then what we could see as woke when it infuses postmodernism into it would be either postmodern neo-Marxism as Peterson had it applied to race, or we could say that we have the racial variant of a cultural identity Marxism. So there's different ways we can characterize this, but what we have is the, the, the evolution of Marxism out of economic theory into cultural Marxism, into this critical Marxism, which is slightly different, uh, into identity politics-based critical Marxism, which is basically neo-Marxism turning into identity politics that then gets infused, as I've covered in several podcasts here on the New Discourses podcast uh, so far, gets infused with, with um, postmodern theory in the late 70s through the uh, early 90s. And what comes out of this actually is critical race theory. I also talk about the critical legal studies movement to a somewhat brief degree here as approximate ideological origins, critical race theory. But basically this chapter is, if we get to about 1915 through 2010, 20, thereabouts, somewhere in the last hundred years, but 1915 forward, where did critical race theory come from? The short answers are neo-Marxism or critical Marxism, taking on identity politics and combining with postmodern theory. 
the roles of things like the critical pedagogy, the education aspect are discussed briefly, the roles of um, critical legal studies movement as a offshoot of the new left, what the new left is, how it infused black liberationism and black feminism are also discussed. Chapter four is the deep ideological origins of critical race theory. So just like critical race theory didn't come out of the ground, it came out of these proximate ideological origins. Those ideological origins themselves came from somewhere. Neo-Marxism didn't come into the world or cultural Marxism didn't come into the world fully formed out of ex nihilo or nihilo, nihilo. How do you say that? I don't know. It didn't come out of the void. It came out of Marxism. And so there are deeper ideological origins. And in this chapter, chapter four of this book, I discuss some of those. You've heard some of this on the podcast. Um, if you're an avid listener. So I talk about Marxism itself. I talk about Hegel, where Marx got many of his ideas, but I also talk about um, Rousseau, where both Marx and Hegel got many of their ideas. I regret not finding out until much later and not really having the tools to incorporate it well, that there's actually a link in between Rousseau and uh, Marx in the form of William Blake, a romantic poet. Uh, that would have been useful to get into, but that's a deeper project than I had time to uh, dive into and to add another 10,000 words to this book, which is already too long anyway. But I, so point is, there was a v- vector, or there are multiple vectors by which Rousseau inspired Marx. <clears throat> there are also ways that Rousseau inspired Hegel, and Hegel, and of course, profoundly influenced Marx and his thinking. And then so now, now what we're looking at is the 150 years prior to that. So in the book, I use this metaphor that, unfortunately, for whatever reason, I think the reason was that I was a little drunk. I gave this speech in April of last year. Um, it was a fancy keynote, fancy dinner keynote. The other two keynote speakers were Ron DeSantis and uh, Nigel Farage. So I was in good company. And so I gave this speech, and it was a dinner keynote. So I ate dinner before I gave my speech and not thinking about it. I drank like six glasses of wine. So I walked out on stage and I'm like, oh shit. And I'm like, I'm super drunk. And so I ended up in the middle of the speech saying that critical race theory is the tip of a spear with a 100 year long shaft. And so the proximate ideological origins is a weird metaphor. Um, in chapter three are that 100 year long shaft. And what I argue in this Chapter four is those previous 150 years back through Rousseau constitute uh, 150 years of muscle behind that. And then what I say a little awkwardly, it doesn't quite match up, is that the hands on the spear so far as getting to critical race, it's really more like the fastener onto the spearhead or something. But anyway, I I also talk about the character of W.E.B. Du Bois in this chapter because I didn't know where else to put him, frankly. Because he's not in this mainline kind of Marxist tradition. He ended up dying a Marxist. But he wasn't a Marxist when he wrote his most influential book, the one that actually sets much of the stage for critical race theory, which was uh, The Souls of Black Folk, which was published in 1903. And so this before neo-Marxism, and he wasn't a Marxist at the time, and I didn't quite know where else to stick him. So we've got this whole chapter for the deep ideological origins of critical race theory that um, covers, uh, Marx, Hegel, Rousseau, and W.E.B. Du Bois, um, 
who was the first black PhD from Harvard, uh, who spent a couple of years in, or about a year and a half, almost two years in Germany, uh, before he came back and wrote The Souls of Black Folk. And so this is where critical race theory gets this folkish nationalist perspective and its emphasis on dual consciousness and or double consciousness and all of these other ideas. Um, so Du Bois can't be ignored. Moving on from the theory in chapter five, critical race praxis, how critical race theory operates, I detailed that critical race theory really only has so many tricks up its sleeve. And what you'll notice is that the same things happen again and again and again in different contexts. Now, this isn't like counter woke craft, which was a book with my name on it that I did not write by uh, Charles Pincourt, which New Discourses published uh, a couple of months ago. Um where he goes through in detail, you know, many of the tactics. And I do mention actually some of the tactics that Charles lays out in particular, what he refers to as the reverse Mott Bailey Trojan horse technique. And the Mott Bailey technique of obviously has to be talked about with the linguistic tricks. But what I point out is that the, the critical race theory doesn't have very many purposes and it doesn't have very many tactics. It kind of does the same things over and over again. And in particular, what you really want to take away from this, of course, I said the maxim critical race theory is as critical race theory does. But at the same time, what, what does critical race theory do is it creates more critical race theorists. That's all it does. Why? Because it's communism and the communist belief is that if everybody's an ideologist, they say not an ideologist in communism. I should be much more careful than that. Marx says Marxism is the end of ideology. Of course, that's just projection. But if everybody actually believes the Marxian theory fully and is completely conscious in it, they don't believe it. They have consciousness. In other words, they use theory as a speculum between uh, action and reflection on what they've done. Uh, so they have a dialectical relationship called praxis between theory, action, and reflection. If they are critical race theorists or if they are Marxist theorists with class consciousness, if enough people have that, then the revolution will proceed, then socialism will come, or equity in this case, and at the other end of the communist rainbow, we will end up where Marxists don't know how, communism doesn't know how, we'll end up in racial justice or communism or whatever utopia that they believe. And so the only real thing that critical race theory exists to do is produce critical race theorists and institutions that produce more critical race theorists. That's all they do at the end of the day, but they have a number of tricks. We've talked about these on the podcast. I'm not going to go crazy depth about them, but that's what this chapter is about. Finally, chapter six, what can we do about critical race theory? followed by a short conclusion and the rather extensive references list, which is primarily almost entirely composed of primary sources and very few secondary sources uh, or tertiary sources. But what can we do about critical race theory? And I talk about the need for practical solutions like kind of legal challenges and um, uh, legislative attacks, but also the need for a kind of cultural renewal where we're focusing on the right kind of values, which of course I still think are broadly enlightenment liberal values. I'm not going to become one of these people who's actually a reactionary, I don't think, against any of this. And that these values are that, that we need to cultivate are the, the big thing I bring to the table is this idea that I refer to as a is um Americanism and common sensibility. And so I go into detail about what I mean by Americanism and what I mean by having a common sensibility where people can understand one another on common terms. And I say that we need both those, both of those approaches need to be engaged. We actually have to practically remove critical race theory and its theorists 
from positions of power that they're intrinsically or they're automatically abusing, uh, or that they can't help but abuse is a better way to phrase that. And then we also need to have the kinds of cultural level changes that get people to see the issue differently, um, to see society differently going forward. And I talk large <laughs> Americanism, I say, boils down basically to decentralization of power. And then I think that's absolutely key. And then common sensibility follows from a decentralization of power, because if there's no centralization, there's no country club to which you can belong that's, that makes you uncommon to other people. And so uh, that's basically the you know, nutshell version of what's going on in this book. I actually kind of want to try to, you know, talk a little bit more about the specific chapters and give you a little bit more of a flavor, uh, kind of run through these things. But like I said, chapter one, I'll start there again, is defining critical race theory. I'll remind you of the fun definitions that I give. Critical race theory noun, one, calling everything one wants to control racist until it's fully under your control. Two, a Marxian conflict theory of race, that is race Marxism. And three, a belief, and that's key, belief, that racism created by white people for their own benefit is the fundamental organizing principle of society. And it's actually mostly this third definition that I spend uh, this chapter arguing in favor of, that what you actually see is that a bunch of Marxists or neo-Marxists who weren't having success got together, turns out in 1989 in Madison, Wisconsin, and created critical race theory to center race as the central construct for understanding inequality, as Gloria Ladson Billings and William Tate had it in their paper toward a critical race theory of education. And these people had the objective Therefore, to claim that society, being Marxist, they believe that society, this is not a complicated argument, society is structured, superstructure versus base, it is structured by a force called systemic racism. The ideology that upholds that is white supremacy, and people who engage in support, in support white supremacy, etc., or who benefit from it and therefore are complicit in maintaining it are the ideologists of white supremacy. They are racists or white supremacists. And that society is stratified into two levels by these people. And we're going to now understand that society is organized according to this principle of this ideology of white supremacy, which works as a superstructure and its racial base uh, that's so everybody who benefits from by which includes by default all white people everybody who benefits from whiteness which is access to white supremacy uh, is in the ideologist category they generate the excuses for why the system should be what it is and everybody else is in the, all the racial minorities are in the base uh, and they actually produce all of the real cultural products etc. that are then culturally appropriated and so on, and they are oppressed. So the fundamental organizing principle, so I spend this chapter defending the idea that the fundamental organizing principle of society is that white people have created a society structured by, in the Marxist sense of structured, structured by racism for their own benefit, and it's 
split society, like I said, stratify society into the uh, the racial bourgeoisie, which are the whites, and those that are uh, given the benefits of whiteness, acting white, white adjacency, whatever term they want to use. And then there are the racial proletariat, which if you have listened to my extensive discussions of, of Marcuse, you see that he was calling for in the 60s and then the identity politics came, came in, etc. So this is the claim that the best way to understand critical race theory, this is the point of this chapter, the best way to understand critical race theory is a critical, it is the belief that society is structured by racism created by white people. And that is the fundamental organizing principle of society. And of course, that it must be resisted. And so I detail through, this chapter is mostly designed to detailing through the literature to point out that this really is a Marxian theory of race. There's no good way you can deny that this is a Marxian theory of race, that this is based in a very long trajectory of Marxist thought through the 20th century, of course, mentioning uh, Marcusa significantly. For those of you who pay attention to the podcast, you know, of course, I'm going to talk quite a bit about Marcusa, but the goal is to really hammer home that that's their definite, the definition that we should understand critical race theory as. There is that practical one calling everything racist to you control it just calling it race Marxism, in other words, a Marxian conflict theory of race. So there's some explanation of that. I call this an outsider's definition of critical race theory. And then the racism created by and that benefits white people is the the fundamental organizing principle of society. So that is ultimately what this chapter does. I invite you, of course, to get the book and read my arguments so that you can see that this is, in fact, what... um, Critical race theory, this is the best way to define critical race theory. Uh, the, it's a Marxian theory of race. In other words, race is a structural force that organizes society into haves and have-nots, proletarian bourgeoisie, and that the uh, proletariat needs to be made racially conscious to awaken and overthrow society so that they can own the means now, not of material production, but of cultural production. Whiteness is going to therefore be understood as a form of property, uh, bourgeois property in particular. That's more of what we're going to dive into in the second chapter. That's actually straight from a paper from 1993 by Cheryl Harris called Whiteness as Property. And then at the end of this chapter, I actually go into the discussion of how, if, if you actually read the literature on critical race theories, for example, Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk, which I've talked about a lot and a lot of people have learned is very important in this. If you actually read that, um, they never really give a very succinct definition of uh, critical race theory. But in the last half of this chapter, I try to go through their sources and try to explain, in fact, what uh, critical race theory is. More useful to this is is the uh, critical race theory, the key writings that form the movement by, well, edited by Kimberly Crenshaw and some others. Uh, this is probably the kind of the er text or the, the chief text. If you really want to know what critical race theory is and what it's about, you need to read it. It's hard. It's much harder. The introduction, I've wanted to do a series of podcasts on the introduction of that book, but it's long. It'd be like seven podcasts. It's a lot. Here's... Um, something from that that I've quoted here in the chapter one, uh, organized. This is from Crenshaw, I think is who actually wrote the introduction, but as the, as the editor, but, um, there are a couple other editors as well, organized by a collection of neo-Marxist intellectuals, former new left activists, 
ex-counterculturalists, and other variety of oppositionists in law schools. The Conference on Critical Legal Studies, where critical race theory was developed, established itself as a network of openly leftist law teachers, students, and practitioners committed to exposing and challenging the ways American law served to legitimize an oppressive social order. And then I go on to explain that this needs to be understood in terms of race um, and how it's all a superstructural arena and so on. So I think that in, even in their own words, it becomes very clear that critical race theory is um, a Marxian theory of, of race or Marxian conflict theory of race. So race Marxism. And as such, it believes the fundamental organizing principle of society is a stratifying force that separates into a, a racial bourgeoisie, white, and a racial proletariat, people of color, uh, who are intrinsically in class conflict across racial lines and cultural property becomes the more relevant piece. So that's how I talk about defining critical race theory. I think it will actually make very clear what I think critical race theory is and how we should understand it and then should break down for everybody in very simple terms that I'm not crazy or wrong. I'm actually just reflecting their literature in words that aren't as deceptive as theirs. I really should say that critical race theorists are liars at some point here because they are. Uh, chapter two is what critical race theory believes. I think if what I really wanted to draw out, though, with, with that definition is that this is actually critical race theory is actually a belief system. It should be thought of as a religion. It should not be thought of as a social theory because it's barely a social theory. It is a religion posing as a social theory, uh, but at least it's a belief system about how society works. In other words, that the fundamental organizing principle of society is racism that benefits white people. Um, so in this chapter, to kind of really just make sure every, it's very clear, I'm not strawmanning critical race theory in this book. I go through lots of different key tenets of critical race theory. What does critical race theory actually believe? In its own words, often, and how do you interpret that? Um, lots of books exist on critical race theory, and they give lots of different answers uh, to that question. They usually list four or five or six key tenets. In this, I actually cover 12 plus one. 12 are actually key tenets of critical race theory, and the plus one is critical whiteness studies, which is not actually separable from critical race theory. Um, so the key tenets of critical race theory, and I'll just kind of summarize these fairly quickly to give you an idea. One, and I unfortunately have bullets here in the book, so we'll see how this goes when I try to remember the numbers. One, a belief that racism is ordinary and permanent in society. It is beyond any question that this is a key tenet of critical race theory. It is in virtually every one of the books that racism is the, the ordinary state of affairs as Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk have it in critical race theory and introduction of society. It's so-called normal science. So racism is by default present in everything. And in fact, that it's permanent in society is a contribution. Well, it's obvious that that's what critical race theory is about, but it's a contribution of Derek Bell as well, whose 1992 book titled Faces at the Bottom of the Well um, carries a subtitle, The Permanence of Racism. Um, so Derek Bell, if you don't know, first tenured, African-American tenured professor uh, of law at Harvard Law, um, considered by most people to be the father of critical race theory in conjunction with Kimberly Crenshaw, who was his student at Harvard 
and who named critical race theory in 1989. Derek Bell's first major work in critical race theory is a 1970 book called Race, Racism, in American Law. Uh, you, if, if you read Derek Bell and you read Kimberly Crenshaw, you will figure out very, very quickly Kimberly Crenshaw's major works really first starting to appear in 89 and 90, 91, that in that 20-year gap that there's been a massive change in how race and law are thought about from Bell to Crenshaw. Bell is very much materialist in the sense that he's considered with the material aspects of law. What does it do to schooling? What does it do to zoning? What does it do in terms of um, you know material impact on people's lives? This is Materialism is kind of like actually old school Marxism. So it's not quite the same thing as what we see in critical race theory today, which is much, much, much more cultural because most of the material issues are less relevant, at least at the level of societal structures that have much meaning. And so it's now a much more cultural and diffuse thing. And that's the influence of postmodernism and black feminism, which Kimberly Crenshaw is kind of the figurehead uh, that we're going to blame for this, although it's certainly not all her doing. So Derek Bell is not an insignificant figure, uh, but the first tenet of critical race theory virtually universally in critical race theory books is the belief that racism is ordinary and permanent in society. What does permanent mean here, by the way? It means that you don't fix racism. There is no racial progress. You cannot fix racism. Racism only learns to hide itself better until there's a complete racial revolution. So there's a revolution in society that sets society on a new track. This is a Marxian belief structure that capitalism basically just reproduces itself in ever more subtle forms. It's no longer industrial exploitation. It becomes consumerist exploitation, becomes advertising, becomes culture industry, blah, 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 subtler and subtler forms. Capitalism isn't getting better. It's actually getting worse. It's actually also getting more dangerous because now the working class has been convinced that they shouldn't be revolutionary agents, that they should that they that they have a pretty good life. And even Marcusa in six, in the sixties says, and it is a good life. It delivers the goods, he says, but it's not a better life, a better way of life that's outside uh, of the existing society's consciousness, which would be communism. So the way critical race theory thinks about racism is the same. Civil rights movement, abolition of slavery, etc. These didn't make racism better. They just made racism less visible, necessitating an increasingly critical theory of race to be able to see where the hidden racism is and to see, in fact, that it is actually worse than uh, it was when it was more overt. Uh, so racism is not getting better. We're not achieving racial progress. This has never been the case. It's actually been that racism has been a constant um, and, in fact, gets worse in certain ways, and in one of the ways that it gets worse is, in fact, that it becomes harder to find and necessitates an even more critical critical theory as time goes on in order to be able to detect it. You'll recognize this as the insane ravings of a cult or of paranoiacs, but here we are. So that's the first tenant. Second tenant, acceptance of the interest convergence thesis of Derek Bell. So I just talked about Derek Bell. One of his biggest ideas is what he called the interest convergence thesis, which is basically that people in the upper class of society only help people in the lower class when it's in their own interests. If it was Marxism, we would say that the capitalists only throw a bone to the proletariat when it's going to somehow come back to their own benefit. You could say, for example, that Henry Ford 
by figuring out that he could pay his workers a wage that would make them wealthy enough to be able to afford his products was actually that he makes a profit off of everyone sold was actually uh, not helping build a middle class or at least he didn't care about it. He was actually helping his own pocketbook. The idea, by the way, one of the ideas of Marxism you must understand is that they actually are caught in zero-sum thinking. They can't possibly understand that it is possible for everybody to rise together, By the, which is funny because they're obsessed with production and they're obsessed with surplus value. And so the idea that there is actually you know surplus value being created and thus we have actually a positive sum game, they seem not to understand this. So their view is a Henry Ford, not that he was a great guy, by the way, raging progressive, him and his stupid foundation are behind a lot of the crap that we're dealing with with the stuff in the world right now. But nevertheless, the idea that he would say, hey, maybe if I pay my employees enough and they become a middle class, they'll be able to afford my product. I'll make more profit and they will have a better life. Win win. The Marxist would see that as him figuring out how to trap them in further exploitation forever. Um, Whereas it turns out that the actual working class is like, hey, cool, we got cars, we got a decent life, we can get back and forth to work. As these reform, labor reforms that were actual reforms took place through parts of the late 19th and 20th centuries, um, the working class stabilized, the neo-Marxists were like, oh no. But anyway, the interest convergence thesis is basically the racial reinterpretation of this same paranoid, cynical view, which is that effectively white people only do things that are that bring about improvements in, or apparent improvements in racial equality or justice or equity or whatever other word you want when it's actually in their own self-interest. The biggest example Bell harped about was the 1954 decision, uh, the Board of Education, was it Brown versus Board of Education? So Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas or something like that. And in this uh what Bell says is that the white people only desegregated schools because the communists were no shit because the commun and he didn't care that the white people didn't care that it was actually going to make situation worse for black people to desegregate the schools. Uh, they were actually doing it for their own self-interest, which was because the communists were putting out propaganda saying that communism is without race. It's workers of the world unite. We're anti-racist or not racist. So the first anti-racist society is communism. And uh, so the backwards America is still racist as hell. And so it was actually anti-communist propaganda that led to the desegregation of schools in 1954 through um, Brown versus Board of Education. And so he's very cynical about Brown versus Board of Education, brings it up a lot. Uh, and he uses this as a case where he says, well, yeah, maybe it was in black people's interests to have desegregated schools, and maybe it wasn't. But it was also in white people's interests because of the communism thing. And it's only because it was in both people's interests. It's only because those interests converged that uh, something happened. And thus, the interest convergence thesis basically says that the people who are in the racial uh, bourgeoisie, white people, never have the right motivations at, at best for why they do anything. And they're never actually interested in racial justice or racial equality or equity. They're not interested in any of that. They're only interested in improving their own situation. Very cynical, very paranoid, very unhealthy. Um, this leads to a belief in material determinism. This is actually a Marxist belief. It's just a straight police, straight Marxist belief that the material conditions that one lives in shape you to the level of your character. Who you are is actually determined at who you are as a human being. Your contents of your character are actually determined by your stratification and racial class or social class, or economic class or whatever. And so 
critical race theory has a little bit of this material determinism, but it's pretty careful about material determinism. It's much less interested in that, but it still has some elements. So the third point that I raise is a belief in material determinism by racial category. In other words, that there are material effects to having racial uh, characteristics, whether white or uh, non-white or black in particular, there are material consequences and those material consequences shape one's character so that uh, who you are, when, when you say something like Martin Luther King says, you know, we're going to judge by the uh, content of one's character rather than the color of one's skin. Material determinism says that the co- in, in, in critical race theory would say that the color of one's skin has material impacts that thus determine the contents of one's character. So that Martin Luther King was offering in that shining statement that apparently white people really like, this very cynical, paranoid way to think of things, um, is in fact uh, false. It's, it's, it's not real. It's just a way to fool black people into thinking they have equality where they don't. Um, by the way, I, meant, I should have mentioned with the interest convergence thesis, Derek Bell, just to point this out, uh, they say you have to become anti-racist, but when you become anti-racist, then you no longer get the heat of, of not having been anti-racist. So it was in your own self-interest to become anti-racist. So it was racist by interest convergence. You only did it in your own self-interest. And you think nobody could be that self, uh, that, that, that paranoid. It could be that cynical about somebody's motivations, but no, that's basically Robin D'Angelo's whole shtick. That's where she says that, that good white liberals do the most daily damage to people of color. That's why there's a book called good white people by Shannon Sullivan. That's why, uh, the, I mean, that's basically the whole argument of, of, (laughs) <laughs> the whole argument against good white people uh, through all of the critical whiteness studies people. So anyway, I digress. Um, fourth key tenet I outline of critical race theory is the social con- construction and imposition of race. And now a lot of people would say that the definition of critical race theory is that racism is socially, con- race is a socially constructed phenomenon. So racism is the product of a social construction and it is embedded in uh, social structures like law and culture, etc., in ways that have impacts that can't be denied, and that's structural or systemic racism. So they believe that race is socially constructed and imposed by those with racial dominance upon those without racial dominance or that are racially oppressed. So believing that race is a social construction rather than a kind of clumsy category, uh, conventional category, is a Marxian trick that's played here. Um, and to say that it was cons- to say something in, in Marxist and in woke speak or in general, to say something is socially constructed actually means that it, they believe that it was politically constructed. It was constructed by the people with power in order to increase in their power and the benefit that they get from their power and therefore to continue to discriminate uh, against others. I wonder if I can find it very quickly. I wasn't intending to do this, but there's actually a definition of race that you should actually hear that because it sounds like no way that that could possibly be you know what they really mean no really it is the definition of race that's given on the brandeis social justice let me find it actually i'm sorry i know it's in the chapter i quote it So this, um, our social justice definitions by Brandeis University. So when I I say that they say that social construction equals political construction for the benefit, and this is also why we should understand that critical race theory is a belief that 
the belief system based on the idea that white people created racism for their own benefit. Um, and that's the fundamental organizing principle of society. Here's the definition that they actually give on Brandeis University website, um, diversity resources and definitions for race, for race. The definition of race is a misleading and deceptively appealing classification of human beings created by white people originally from Europe, which assigns human worth and social status using the white racial identity as the archetype of humanity for the purposes of creating and maintaining privilege, power, and systems of oppression. So when they say that race is socially constructed, that's what they actually mean. What they actually mean is that it is a political construct created by people with power in order to continue their power, to hold themselves up as default and good and in other words, to execute the ideology as Marxism would have it. Anyway, this leads in turn to point number six, because I don't want to get lost in this very long chapter, belief in structural determinism by racial category. Same thing, is that the structure of society. So now we're probably going to get kind of Saussurian with structural structural thought, so structuralism in this regard. When we start looking at, well, particularly here, actually, uh, Louis Althusser, who was uh, Michel Foucault, postmodernist Michel Foucault's PhD advisor and a colleague of Jacques Derrida, another uh, um, French postmodernist, Mr. Poststructuralism himself, in fact. Uh, they said that Marxism kind of gets something wrong. Marx saw the base and the superstructure, and it was never quite clear where the dividing line between those things are. And the superstructure is where ideology is produced and the base is where all of the product of society is produced. And the structuralists, besides the ones that were linguists, so that's more Saussurian, is the linguistic side of this, and that's more Derrida. But what we have actually, as far as a Marxian structuralist theory goes, when we look at Althusser, for example, what we actually have going on there is this, they, they believe that the super the, the superstructure, which is roughly the bourgeoisie, and the infrastructure or the base is the infrastructure, which is basically the producing proletariat, are in dialectical opposition to one another and that they run like an engine and that the dialectical synthesis that's coming out and so society is the, that forms the society is the structure. And so the structure or structural network of society is how, how society is organized. That's why I say they see race as the fundamental organizing principle of society for this. And so they believe, though, that just like the material conditions that from Marxism are believed to be determinant in terms of determining who you actually are as a person, your consciousness in the world, so too does the social structure create a determinism. And this is called, so point number six is belief in structural determinism by racial category. So who you happen to have been born as racially determines who you are at the level of your character, etc. So this is sidestepping racial essentialism or biological essentialism, that who you are biologically by race has anything to do with your character or who you are. And instead it's saying that it's it, that the conditions of society, the social conditions, the social structure of society, which is a dialectical synthesis or fruit of the uh the interplay between superstructure and infrastructure in opposition to one another, that that creates conditions and those conditions shape who you are morally. So it's moral essentialism by race instead of biological essentialism by race and cultural essentialism by race. So the races now have cultures. And of course, postmodernism steps into this very significantly and says, yes, because they're communities and communities have their own um, 
their own whole approach to knowledge. They have their own knowledges, their own, everything is culturally contingent. Knowledge is culturally contingent. So yes, the black community has a black culture and that black culture is then being imposed from the outside because they don't necessarily want to have it, but it's also being claimed as a mantle from within. And that creates a, uh, th that social structure creates a determinism at the cultural level. So, so black culture is culturally determined by the structural forces of society and thus black character is conditioned in the same way. But it sounds like I'm maybe picking on black people. That's not true by racial category. So white people have privilege, racial privilege, according to this Marxian theory, privilege being the word that means you have access to the bourgeoisie, racial bourgeoisie, or you have racial, you're a racial property holder. That's racial privilege. Um, and so they are conditioned in the same way. So they're willfully ignorant and they are white fragile. Uh, they have a fragility associated with it. They prefer to maintain white comfort. They uphold a white racial contract, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so white people are conditioned to be privileged, spoiled brats by their racial category because of structural determinism. The social structure conditions their character and who they are. So now you have moral essentialism by moral and cultural essentialism by racial category as and, and the, who you happen to have been born as racially is has strong deterministic effects on on who you're going to be so when we go back again to Martin Luther King and he says we're going to judge not by the content or not by the color of skin but by the content of character they're going to say no the imposition of race and racism and that imposition part is very important. The white people created it and impose it upon everybody else to maintain their own dominance. That creates a social structure because that's a racial superstructure that works against a racial infrastructure. That creates a racial social structure, a racist social structure. And that conditions everybody based on who they happen to be, their racial positionality as intersectionality would have it. That conditions everybody to be particular ways. And that's why they all, everybody's kind of like this performing character within their racial category. And that's why when you have, say... Um, Larry Elder run for governor in California. The LA Times writes that he's the white face of black, or sorry, the black face of white supremacy. Totally said that backwards. That's funny. So belief in structural determinism by racial category is a key belief of critical race theory. Why? Because it's a Marxian theory. That's why. Uh, but they say that this gives rise within that cultural essentialism or that moral essentialism to a unique voice of color that can speak from that position. In other words, positional standpoint epistemology, which is intersectionality took this bad feminist idea called standpoint epistemology, it turned it what they say kaleidoscopic and positional. And it's the question is, how are you positioned against, based on your racial category and critical race theory, how are you positioned in that racial uh, structure of society? How does that position you against power dynamics of society? And that positioning has to be reckoned with. And it also grants you by virtue of structural determinism, a unique voice of color. So having a unique voice of color that's morally determined, morally essential to your racial category becomes a key tenet of critical race theory. Now, this is super poisonous because there's two sides. I just mentioned Larry Elder being the black face of white supremacy. Well, that's because he was a black face, as Ariana Presley had it, a congresswoman who didn't want to be a black voice. He wasn't speaking from his unique voice of color because he wasn't upholding the critical race theory narrative. In other words, same thing as you see where any Marxist says that anybody who's not spouting Marxism is fascist or as a rightist or a reactionary. And you see this in every single one of them. 
same idea. It's just a doctrine within critical race theory that enables that line of thinking. And you can see that it definitely keeps not just black people, but every people of every racial category on whatever plantation uh, the critical race theorists want to keep them on. Um, having unique voice of color and needing to speak from that unique voice of color leads to, I don't know where we're at, like number eight now, storytelling, narrative weaving, and counter storytelling as methodologies. So the use of storytelling from that unique voice of color circumvents the need to use evidence, which is a form of white storytelling, by the way, according to them. And so you have to tell the story from your unique voice of color to disrupt the dominant assumptions, et cetera, of society. So storytelling, uh, usually going to be very highly biased and self-serving critical race theory stories. Storytelling is going to be elevated as a form of very authentic evidence. And this is where that chapter four stuff gets interesting because that actually ties straight back to Rousseau's idea, ideas about sincerity and sentimentality being better arbiters of truth than, um, than, than reason and logic and, 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 and evidence. And so this does, like I said, these ideas aren't brand new. Uh, because storytelling becomes so important from unique voice of color, you have also historical revisionism. This is actually listed, or it was at the time when I wrote this. It may have changed by now, on because I've pointed it out a few times, uh, and they would want to hide this. Historical revisionism, like the 1619 Project, is a key pillar component of critical race theory. Uh, so this rewriting history to make it conform to critical race theory and its take, it's critical race theory washing history. I'd say redwashing because it's communist. It's not blackwashing because it's not actually about black anything all that much. They use they use black, but it's actually about communism uh, using race. So they're rewriting uh, history from the perspective of critical race theory. That's what the 1619 Project is actually all about. And when you understand that, it's the same kind of historiography or whatever that, Ma that Mao wrote and that even the, the Guomintang wrote before Mao, asserting that there's this grand 5,000 year history of a single united China the you know, to create this great sense of national pride. They rewrote all of Chinese history to be this fake Chinese history, this pastiche. Uh, Mao did that and the critical race theory using things like the 1619 project is doing exactly the same thing. So we cover that. Um, kind of jumping track off of obviously the last several of those kind of tied together. Critical race theory also has as a key belief a deep critique of liberalism and the very foundations of the liberal order. We've all heard the quote from me, if you listen to me now, from Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk, where they say that critical race theory is not like traditional approaches to civil rights. It, in fact, calls into question the very foundations of the liberal order. Many liberals would be shocked to find this out. It is not a liberal theory. It is an anti-liberal theory. Uh, what are these liberal tenets that they call into question? Delgado and Stefanczyk tell us equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law are to be called into fundamental question in critical race theory. Critical race theory is predicated on a critique of liberalism. It says that liberalism is wrong. It says that equality theory is wrong, that rule of law is wrong, that neutrality in constitutional law is wrong, that enlightenment rationalism is wrong. And in fact, that these are just stories that were created from the white position, the bourgeois, racially bourgeois position to justify. In other words, they're, they're a broad reaching ideology or as the postmodernists had it, a meta narrative to justify white dominance throughout history. And the critique of liberalism is that liberalism is just this huge artifice in order to 
to, to maintain white supremacy. And so they critique the very foundation liberal order to the point of saying rights are said to be alienating, <laughs> believed to be alienating, and so on. Um, speaking of rights as property rights, if we're going to talk about Marxism, we have in the second chapter of the Communist Manifesto that Marx says that the communism can be summarized in a single sentence, abolition of private property. He says throughout the Communist Manifesto over and over and over again that it's about the abolition of private property. If you read even his earlier work from 1844, the uh, economic and philosophic manuscripts. He says over and over again that the point of communism is the abolition of private property. And here we have in critical race theory is a key pillar, a key tenant, the idea that whiteness is a form of property. Marx says that we're not going to abolish all property. We're going to abolish, abolish bourgeois private property. Whiteness as a form of property characterizes whiteness as bourgeois property, which is to be abolished, which is why you have Robin D'Angelo say that the goal is to become less white and there's no such thing as a positive white identity. It all comes together. So whiteness as a form of property is another key belief of critical race theory. Uh, down to number 11, intersectionality is a key component of critical race theory. That's Kimberly Crenshaw's invention. Talked obscenely long already about this chapter, so I'm not going to dive into intersectionality, but it's basically the belief that all forms of oppression are linked and can't be understood unless you understand one against all the others. Can't understand oppression by sex unless you also understand how race impacts the oppression by sex. If you are a black woman, for example, you have oppression by race and by sex, so you have all kinds of extra oppression. You have all the oppression of race, all the oppression of sex, plus the oppression of being a black woman specifically, plus the oppression of not knowing which oppression that you're facing when you're feeling oppressed, blah, 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 blah. And so intersectionality creates a hierarchy of oppression, a matrix of domination, as Patricia Hill Collins called it. And that's why you have to constantly engage positional standpoint epistemology to figure out what you're allowed to know and what stories you can tell and when you have to shut up and listen, as they say. And finally, the 12th of these 13 points in this chapter is anti-racism as praxis. In other words, the idea that we call anti-racism is a Marxist praxis. It is the idea of putting something into uh, taking theory, critical race theory, putting it into practice, reflecting upon that only in terms of not what were the actual outcomes, which could be good, but rather how would critical race theory interpret these outcomes and thus deepen both the theory and the praxis. And that's where critical race theory is, as critical race theory does, becomes kind of the key thing. That's, of course, the title of chapter five. And then finally, in this chapter, I talk about critical whiteness studies, which is sometimes, sometimes they'll admit that it's part of critical race theory, sometimes they won't. I think I make a definitive case that it is, in fact, part of critical race theory. It can't be denied, even though it is something separate. Um, it also really can be said to have begun in earnest in 1970, though its uh, originator is a very little-known woman uh, who allegedly is an adjunct at American University now, but I don't know what she was doing in 1970, but she, her name is Patricia Bidall, and B-I-D-O-L, I think I've pronounced it right, maybe not, and then later in the 70s, Judith Katz, and uh, Judith Katz is the sole um, citation, not from her 1978 book called White Awareness, which is obviously whiteness studies, uh, but from a later paper she wrote. But she's the sole um, citation on the white principles of white, white culture or whatever that the Smithsonian National African American History Museum put out 
um, last summer very uh, controversially and then immediately took it down and everybody in the internet saved it and shares it all the time anyway. So if you remember that where it said things like the loyalty and hard work and science and so on are all aspects of white culture and punctuality, I think was a big one. They had all these things that are just good pro-social values. They said that that's actually white supremacy culture. And that's actually the sole, again, the sole citation is Judith Katz. And Judith Katz in 1978 wrote a book called White Awareness that is basically, when you read it, you're like, wow, Robin D'Angelo was basically doing this crackpot HR program that Judith Katz laid out and then wrote White Fragility as a result of people not you know, dealing with the fact that people didn't like being put through this program. And you're like, did she steal this? But Bidal and Katz, through in the 70s. Bidal, by the way, was highly funded by the NEA, the, the National Education Association. So if you wondered if the teachers unions have been at the bottom of a lot of this crap, even back in 71 and 72, they were paying Bidal to write a manual for education, which was published in 73 by them, by the NEA and distributed by the NEA. Um, so critical whiteness studies comes from there. And these people were Bidal and uh, Katz. And you can kind of see where Robin D'Angelo gets a lot of her crap being kind of the big figure of critical whiteness studies these days, um, they actually believe that that white privilege is a form of, uh, or whiteness really is a form of schizophrenia and uh, mental illness and should be treated as such. And so in this section, I go through several of the big scholars. Barbara Applebaum gets a lot of attention. Um, in addition to these other people I've named, Robin D'Angelo gets a lot of attention of uh, what critical whiteness studies actually says. Um, this is a good quote, by the way, from Barbara Applebaum's book, Being White, Being Good. Uh, white, in case you ever wondered, does critical race theory actually say that all white people are racist by virtue of being white? Yes, it does. Um, but here's a quote from, from, and I did get have like 10 quotes saying that from, from Barbara Applebaum here. But here's one that uh, says this. White privilege protects and supports white moral standing, and this protective shield depends on there being an abject other that constitutes white as good. By the way, that's the Hegelian dialectic, the abject other. It's actually Gnosticism, by the way. The fundamental idea of Gnosticism is, no, sorry, Hermeticism. It's not Gnosticism. It's a, uh, Hermeticism is, is alchemy. And Hermeticism says that, that in order to know himself, God had to create an abject other. By which he could know himself. And so here we have the abject other that constitutes white is good. So it is in critical race theory, again, going back to Rousseau through Hegel uh, and then Marx is the, is the so-called master-slave dialectic between the races. So the whites only understand themselves as good because there's blacks and other races that they can say are inferior. And so she's actually, this whole line of thought, whether it's Rousseau, whether it's Hegel, whether it's Marx, um, whether it's Gnostic and Hermetic thought, uh, which I know are very different and seem like they don't go together, but they do. Um, I didn't say Sabatai Zevi here right at all right now, but I didn't say that. Sabatai Zevi, I didn't say his name. Um, interesting character to look into there. Uh, but anyway, white privilege protects and supports white moral standing, and this protective shield depends on there being an abject other that constitutes white as good. Whites thus benefit from white privilege in a very deep way, and this is why I wanted to read this quote. As Zeus Leonardo remarks, all whites are responsible for white dominance since their very being depends on it. So all whites are responsible for white dominance. That's right. All whites. There's no ambiguity in what she says. And why? Because as Zeus Leonardo tells us, white people's very being 
depends on what. And this, of course, is just some linguistic garbage. What white people, according to critical race theorists, mean by race is that the white people created races so to hold themselves up as the archetype of humanity. We just talked about that. And so um, Zeus Leonardo is using that to say that the, the identity of being white depends on the idea that white people are superior in that way to all other races. And so their very being depends on the idea of white dominance. And you can kind of like squint your eyes and see how what he's saying kind of makes sense if you're an absolute lunatic. But there's a reason that I, I brought this quote up. It's obviously not what's implied is all whites are responsible for white dominance since they're very being white people depend at their very, at their very level of being. So that's a psychological claim on white dominance. But what they're doing is they're playing a double meaning here off of their crackpot definition of race and of white and whiteness and uh, saying that white only has a definition because white, and this maybe had some truth to it 200 years ago, 300 years ago, but it doesn't anymore. But white have created the other themselves against the other races as an object other in the so-called master-slave dialectic, blah, 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 blah. So you can see that they've linguistically conflated a couple of things and you can this is how they do fucking everything they're so annoying um but at any rate why did i want to bring this up it's not the poignancy of this quote or what critical whiteness studies is about it's because zeus leonardo zeus leonardo is a huge very influential very active to this day education activist that's dragged all this crap into education and is still dragging this crap into education and he's one of the most radical marxist thinkers probably in America today, here he's being quoted as saying that all whites are responsible for white dominance since their very being depends on it, or being, he said the last part, the quotes are very being depends on it. Uh, and that's how um, Barbara Applebaum characterizes his argument. But this guy is, I mean, there are all kinds of videos that have come out in this past year of him giving talks that are just absolutely crazy stuff. This And this guy has a ton of influence and his hands are in a bunch of stuff. His name is Zeus Leonardo. It's funny. It's so sounding, so it's easy to remember. Um, go look this guy up. I mean, he, he, is, a, he is a piece of work. Um, so that's, anyway, the, I, I round this chapter out by talking about uh, this critical whiteness studies and its relevance within critical race theory, which often when you try to pin critical race theorists down and point out something that they believe, like that all white people are racist by virtue of being white, they flip out and they say, yeah, that's critical whiteness studies. That's not technically critical race theory, blah, blah, blah. Well, yes, it is. And this is what it actually turns out to be. That's chapter two. I won't do as level the same level of detail for the rest of the book. Um, just going to kind of touch on the other chapters. Like I said, chapter three, the proximate ideological origins of critical race theory. And I think this is really important. In fact, I think this is one of my chief. So one of the bigger contributions to this uh, subject that I've had to offer wasn't just what we talked about in, in cynical theories with the idea that postmodernism is, is central to the uh the critical theories of identity that we we see in the world, but rather that it is the fusion and how that fusion happened, but it is a fusion of critical uh, theory or neo-Marxism or critical Marxism, whatever you want to call it, which is a, um, a kind of a partial evolution of cultural Marxism, which is why a lot of the conservatives referred to it as cultural Marxism. Um, so it is a fusion of, of neo-Marxism or in critical theory, therefore, with postmodernism that they fuse together. And Kimberly Crenshaw has a lot to do with that fusion. And so this chapter is laid out to give you the basic 
history and explanation of what these ideas are and why they're relevant to critical race theory. So the first big section is the, the fusion of critical theory and postmodernism. So to do that, I have to go into both of those ideas and then their fusion. So three different sections. First, I discuss neo-Marxism and cultural Marxism in rather considerable detail in two different ways, as it turns out. Um, the history of the Frankfurt School, the relevance of Max Horkheimer uh, and uh, Theodore Adorno and uh, Herbert Marcuse in particular to um, critical theory and then the influences of particularly uh, Antonio Gramsci and George Lukács to cultural Marxism before that. And so I kind of peel through what cultural Marxism is and what it is not. It's not just a cultural Marxism conspiracy theory that Wikipedia lies and tells us it is. It actually was a set of ideas, an actual way of doing things. It was based largely, everybody thinks it's, I always, I've even said that it's, you know, Mr. Cultural Marxism was Antonio Gramsci, and that's sort of true. He was a big figure, huge figure in terms of how it all plays out. But the reality is that George Lukács is really the kind of cultural Marxism guy. And so we talk about, in this chapter, I go into George Lukács and his influence, Gramsci and his influence. Then I get back into the, the Frankfurt School and the t talk about Horkheimer and what critical theory is, and uh, then not as much, a little bit about Adorno, but a lot more Horkheimer than Marcuse. And from there, I actually bail out on neo-Marxism because I think that critical theory, it's not to say that, that Jürgen Habermas is, is completely irrelevant, but in a lot of regards, the trajectory of this story, he's mostly irrelevant. He's not totally irrelevant, but he's mostly irrelevant. He was the next inheritor after Marcuse of Frankfurt School. And um, the black feminists and the black liberationists, whatever, especially the black feminists, people like Angela Davis and Audre Lorde coming out of this particular identity politics Identity Marx. So what I'm actually lay out here is the birth of identity Marxism as the key direction in which if you want to follow the history of how we got to woke in critical race theory, you have to go through cultural Marxism and from Marxism into cultural Marxism, cultural Marxism into mid uh, critical theory, critical theory into identity politics and thus identity Marxism. And then critical race theory comes out as the identity as a racial component of identity Marxism. Okay, and so that's really the trajectory, and Habermas and further critical theory aren't totally useless or disinteresting, but they're not what matters. So we're going to abandon critical theory after Marcuse and his call for a new proletariat or new working class, which he's going to find in the racial minorities, and then get into um, get into the identity politics stuff. Uh, I've talked absurdly long on this podcast about what neo-Marxism and critical theory are really about. So I'm not going to dive into it in depth here, which is unfortunate, but basically the ideas are that they realized that, or they believed that a, well, they realized that Marxism had failed on all of its major predictions. The cultural Marxists did first, and then the, the neo-Marxists picked it up from there, or critical theorists, which is the same as neo-Marxists, picked it up from there. But they realized that um, the ways that Marx was wrong were pretty significant and fatal to many aspects of his theory. And so they actually drew back. I mentioned the ec economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844, which by the way were published in 1932, not in 1844 from Marx. And they really bent back to that, which is this more kind of theological Hegelian approach 
to stuff before he wrote the Communist Manifesto and later Capital. And the, the neo-Marxists basically believe that by the time he wrote Capital, uh, Marx had, had had lost the plot and was doing the wrong thing. And he was actually more right early on. Um, but uh, the ideas are that you can't actually see the, the better society from within the terms of the existing society. So you need a completely negative theory um, and that only critiques. So the critical theory becomes the tool. Marx, one of his things that he was apparently wrong about was this idea that um, that you can envision a perfect society and work your way to it. And in fact, the critical theorist said, no, you can't. All you can do is bitch about the existing society uh, and hope that the perfect society emerges from the ashes when you tear it down, which is kind of an important development uh, in terms of screwing up the world. And then yet in the cultural Marxism aspect that you're going to do this through cultural matters, which mean more to people than, um, than, uh, economic matters, then, you know, if you want to achieve the revolution. So you can see how that starts to tear apart the entire fabric of society and to have no positive vision whatsoever, except to say that things are going to be great later. And so that's one aspect of that. And another is that they realize that the working class is a self-stabilizing force. So when it agitates for reforms, like Marxism, it gets some, it's life, the working class people actually get a better life. The working class becomes richer. The middle class grows and becomes richer. Um, and they all become stable and they don't want to upset the apple cart and have a freaking stupid revolution. And so working, so the, the, the working class actually stabilizes itself. And that's a problem for Marxist theory. It doesn't makes means you're never going to get your communism. And so they needed a new proletariat uh, and a new way to, to do this. Part of it's relentless criticism and part of it was shifting into identity politics. And so I bring up those points and I think they're important and you can read in tremendous detail how I think all that got laid out and how it happened. Uh, and then eventually I cover, after I cover all of this neo-Marxism stuff, like I said, it's the neo-Marxism and cultural Marxism part is by far the longest part of this chapter because critical race theory is a critical theory. I think it's more important. Uh, then I detail a little bit about postmodernism and postmodernism's relevance. Talk a little bit about Foucault, a little bit about Derrida, a little bit about uh, Lyotard, and a little bit about um, uh, Jean Baudrillard. But I don't really go too deep into postmodernism because you can read cynical theories if you want. And I even say so here that you can just read cynical theories if you really want to know the postmodern aspect. But I summarize it because it's important. Then I spend a good bit of the chapter going into Kimberly Crenshaw and some of the other thinkers of the 80s and explain how these two things were fused. And I lay most of the blame at the feet of Kimberly Crenshaw's 1991 paper uh, titled Mapping the Margins and explain that she figured out the way to do it, which was that we're going to take the social constructivism of postmodernism, and we're going to claim that race is imposed by Marxian type social structures, and that postmodernism is subject to these same forces, or social constructivism is subject to these same forces. And so you can't actually deconstruct uh, identity category the way that the postmodernists seem to be claiming that you could. And so she moves us or moves. I guess, Marxism, identity Marxism, away from what she calls a vulgar constructionism into a more sophisticated, imposed 
constructivism. And so that's the fusion. I did a few podcasts on that here. One is about the Combahee River Collective, the true history of intersectionality. One is about Kimberly Crenshaw's paper itself. That's a two podcast series. I mention it in a lot of the podcasts that I did about Herbert Marcuse, especially the ones where I talk about the rise of identity Marxism, uh, which there's like three of those. So you can go find out more about that. Or of course, just get this book and read it and then you'll know all about it. Um, I touch upon the new left. After that, the new left is the movement that kind of arose in the, especially in the sixties, uh, this new radical left, which Marcusa became known as kind of the father of, uh, the chief philosopher of really, and kind of the main point that I really get to, I don't talk much about the new left. I'm not that interested in the new left, new left in many regards was considered to be rather short lived in its, uh, expression but it had a bunch of sub movements within it. And those are what I spend the rest of the chapter talking about. Uh, but um, it became the academic left. Uh, and Isaac Gotsman in the Critical Turn of Education explains that, that the new left became the academic left by the 1970s and 80s. So the new left was too radical. It died out. Nobody, it didn't, it didn't succeed. Marcuse gets pissed off and writes counter-revolution revolt because of it in 1972. And as Gottsman writes in the opening part of the critical turn in education to the question, where did all the 60s radicals go? The most accurate answer noted Paul Bull in his classic Marxism in the United States would be neither to the religious cults nor yuppiedom, but to the classroom. After the fall of the new left arose a new lowercase new left, an academic left. And so it went into the, it went to school. K through 12 education and into higher education and into the colleges of education. So all the radicalism of the sixties, the left radicalism went into education to execute the so-called long march through the institutions. And we talk about that somewhat, uh, dive into a little of the history of black liberationism because black liberationism in turn, if we're going to understand critical race theory gives it is kind of the background story to it. It gets co-opted by the neo-Marxists and brought into the neo-Marxism uh, way of thinking and eventually blends with kind of neo-Marxist in the black feminism movement. Black feminism sort of takes, I mean, it still exists. Black liberationism is still a thing, but black feminism kind of shows up and does what it usually does and shouted everything down. I talk about the Combahee River Collective, the true origins of intersectionality here in this section about black feminism. And then I mentioned the critical legal studies movement. What you have to understand though is Kimberly Crenshaw was a black feminist. Patricia Hill Collins was a black feminist. A lot of Audre Lorde was a black feminist at in the Combahee River Collective. When you start talking about the founders of what became critical race theory, a lot of them were black feminists. And that's why intersectionality was named by the same person who named critical race theory, who was present at the founding meeting of critical race theory, is considered the uh, second of the two founders of critical race theory alongside Derek Bell. Intersectionality is considered an integral pillar of critical race theory. Uh, it's because it came out of black feminism, which is to say Marxist, neo-Marxist, radical black lesbian feminist, feminist theory is, is really what it is. And so anyway, talk about the critical legal studies movement and how critical race theory, uh, it's the most proximate thing. That's what a critical race theory actually was born out of was a critical legal studies movement, how black feminist legal scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw, although I don't know if she was there in person, ended up infiltrating the movement and blowing it up from within and colonizing it, uh, you know, killing it, gutting it, wearing its skin as a suit. And so critical legal studies falls 
and gets re- in 1986 or thereabouts, and then by 1989 is replaced with critical race theory. Of course, they would complain and say, no, critical legal studies is still existing. It's still happening. No, not really. They more or less wiped it out. And by the beginning of the 1990s, critical race theory is the only thing and uh, kind of document that uh, in this next part. And the, I round out the chapter by talking briefly, and I mean briefly, only like a few paragraphs uh, on critical pedagogy, highlighting Paula Ferrari, Henry Giroux. And, you know, I'm doing a long podcast series uh, here on the podcast, on the New Discourses podcast right now about critical pedagogy going into these characters, Freire, uh, Giroux, etc. Um, it's... um. What do I say here? It's, uh, it's like the, um, it's, it's the, 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 if, if you look at neo-Marxism and postmodernism as the soil out of which woke and critical race theory grow, then what critical pedagogy works as, as I say, is it's, um, the plow, the planter and the fertilizer. It's kind of what enabled it to happen. And I think we're going to see that you know, in the critical pedagogy series, which I don't, this, this isn't a book about critical pedagogy, so I don't devote a whole lot of time or effort to it. Um, so I round out this chapter of proximate ideological origins that way, deeper ideological origins of critical race theory. I'm not even going to go into detail on this here on this episode. You can read the book chapter four, deep ideological origins of critical race theory. But like I said, I've already kind of poked at it. Obviously, if this is race Marxism, it comes out of Marx. Um, Marx got much of his inspiration from from Hegel, and both Marx and Hegel got their inspiration from Rousseau, and then the Lincoln character, uh, in a sense, in some regards, or a Lincoln character, not the, uh, or another very important character within the history of critical race series, W.B. Du Bois, and I cover these characters. The only really interesting thing that I want to bring up from this chapter without getting into what I say about Marx and its relevance to critical race theory, which is basically that this is a Marxist theory and I lay out Marxist historicism. I think I've done that here on the podcast, six stages, you know, of history. Um, Primitive communism leads to slave economy, leads to feudal economy, leads to uh, capitalism, leads to socialism after the revolution and then leads to uh, communism when the state becomes redundant. That's Marx's six stages of history. And I just say critical race theory has the same view. There's a primitive primitive racial justice situation, uh, one tribe to another, and then you enter racial slavery, chattel slavery, and then uh, is, you know, the full expression of, say, white supremacy. Colonialism is tied up into this. There's a second stage, a third stage in history. We abolish slavery, but we have apartheid states. We have Jim Crow. We have segregation, separate but equal, etc. cetera. Uh, and so you end up with a kind of racial feudalism. And then in the fourth stage, we end up after a civil rights movement with colorblind equality. And then in the fifth stage, if there's a racial revolution, which they've been attempting since St. Floyd died and before, um, if there's a racial revolution, then we'll enter into an, a managed state of racial economics, uh, cultural economics, which will be called racial equity. And that's tantamount to socialism. And that will eventually become automatic and spontaneous and lead to uh, racial justice, which is racial communism. And so I just lay out how this, what is Marxism? How does Marx think? And how does it tie in? And I do kind of the same thing, like, how is the Hegelian engine underneath that relevant? And then what are the ties of Rousseau, especially the idea of the social contract, which Charles Mills turned into the racial contract, this idea that all the white people as the ideologists in society 
have an implicit social contract to keep themselves up and to keep the other racial minorities or the other racial groups down, uh, even though they never speak about it or teach about it. It's total conspiracy theory. And so I talk, and Charles Mills, I've read his writing. He's actually a brilliant guy, very thoughtful guy, but he's a total crackpot with this stuff. Um, so, you know, this is what this chapter is about other than Du Bois and other than this note at the beginning, which I call a note on peeling a dialectal, dialectal onion. So the question you might have is, why have I done the book backwards? Why did I talk about critical race theory now, chapters one and two, then talk about its near origins and then talk about Marxism later? Why didn't I talk about Marxism first or even Rousseau and Hegel or whatever, and then talk about neo-Marxism and cultural Marxism and postmodernism, kind of in the historical order that they evolved, and then tell the story in order that we get to eventually black feminism, Combahee River, intersectionality, critical race theory in the present. And the reason is because I explained that with this, that this is all, you have to understand this is, this is the Hegel thing, all dialectical. And to understand dialectical shifts, it's actually easier to peel the onion backwards, to start with the thing that you have now and just to peel away and say, okay, you can understand that this is a reinvention of the previous. And the reason is because the way that the dialectic works is that it takes a thesis and it takes an antithesis and it crams them together into a synthesis, a synthetic creation that's supposed to keep elements of both previous things. And uh, it's actually easier to see that if we tell the story backwards. And that's why I wrote the book backwards. Also, because if I didn't start by talking about critical race theory, I think it would have been very difficult to get people's attention and who want to just understand critical race theory. So I then explained that this entire freaking project is based on what I call a dialectical faith of leftism. Uh, critical race theory is just a racial component of the dialectical faith of leftism and other components. Marxism was a part of the dialectical um faith of leftism, but that dialectical faith came from Hegel. You can go listen to the four hour Hegel podcast that I did to get a sense of what I'm talking about with that. Um, I think the Marx part of this chapter is extraordinarily interesting. I don't want to spoil that for you by trying to cram it here. Uh, some other episodes of this uh, new discourses podcast will probably cover it in some detail. And, um, like I said, then I talk about Rousseau, mostly the social contract, the sentimentality, and the idea that sincerity are better arbiters of truth. Also, of course, the master-slave dialectic. So the little story I'll tell you here, um, just historically speaking, is that, that Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French guy, probably to be blamed mostly for the French Revolution, which, by the way, all of the communist revolutions are modeled after the French Revolution in their own ways because they're all big fans of Rousseau. Um, and here's another little fun sidebar. Rousseau is the father of romanticism. Romanticism combined with Gnosticism is what inspired Marx, as it turns out. But romanticism actually led to uh, structuralism and uh well, actually, it led romanticism led to existentialism, and existentialism led to structuralism. Structuralism led to post-structuralism, which is also known as post-modernism, and then that fuses back in. So Rousseauian thought's very, very central. But um, what was happening historically, is a little story I'll tell from here I've got in the book, uh, is that Rousseau was looking at what, in addition to many other things, he was looking at what was going on in the colonial world. And he saw these, he misinterpreted, actually, there's good evidence that, you know, 
priests or missionaries or whatever were writing, this is what it's like in the Dominican, or this is what it's like in the Caribbean islands, or this is what it's like here or there, and Haiti uh, being French. And then he misinterpreted what was being communicated, imposed his own stupid view on it, and said, wow, okay, so what you have are these savages who don't have any of the ideas of civilization. And here we have in Europe all these problems that are actually the problems of civilization, but the savages have their own problems. So he said, if you could figure out how to create savages made to live in cities where the instinct and the impulse and the kind of more raw, noble savage, um, primitive knowledge approach could be fused with whatever's great about the civilization and higher culture in, in European culture, then, and he thought there was a lot in sentimentality and sincerity and all of this in that regard, then you could create something that he referred to as savages made to live in cities. Well, a philosopher Schiller, the German philosopher saw this, thought it was very fascinating, showed it to his student Hegel, uh, who thought it was the most fascinating idea ever. And Schiller, when he communicated it, said that this embodies the concept of Aufheben, which is to abolish, but also to keep and to lift up, that the Marxists translate often as to sublate, um, which is a straight-up Marxian idea, which means basically to make the dialectical synthesis of. And all of all of these ideas all come back to this, that you have these... So Hegel saw that you have... The European races, and then you have the primitive races, and he was totally racist about it, and they're backward-ass races. And what he thought was that you have to have the these differences as other to one another so that there's a dialectic that's produced, and so that you then have to have all this conflict across a dialectic that works out the dialectical process and creates what Rousseau referred to effect effectively as the savages made to live in cities, and everybody's on a higher level through that sublation, through that Alfhaven process. And uh, so this really is where Hegel got his fascination with Alfhaben and with the dialectic was from this view of Rousseau, which is based off of a racist misinterpretation of um, what actual missionaries were sending back from the Caribbean and from parts of Africa that and, and probably from, from South Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, that he was misinterpreting. And putting a weird spin on. And so this master-slave dialectic becomes kind of the centerpiece, the oppressor versus oppressed thing, whether it's racial, whether it's economic, whatever, that's all master-slave dialectic. That's all dips back to this and it's different interpretations on this same idea from Hegel, or sorry, from Rousseau. Uh, so Rousseau's relevance is multiply important um, and kind of a fascinating little, little uh, sidebar there. At the end of the chapter, I talk about W.B. Du Bois. Um, don't want to belabor the point, but he's most famous for writing a book called The Souls of Black Folk. What happened was Du Bois, um, kind of a, he's described in the late 1800s as being kind of a politically naive, uh, sort of semi-libertarian figure. He ends up going as an exchange student to Germany and was going to finish his doctorate in Germany, but ended up not being able to. And after two years... Uh, he comes back to the United States, finishes his doctorate at Harvard in something like 1895, plus or minus a couple of years. And while he's in Germany, he gets just absolute. He has these tutors that are big, you know, German nationalists, as a lot of people were. He started a habit of dressing like the Kaiser, celebrating the Kaiser's birthday. If you've ever seen pictures of W. B. Du Bois, you see that he has this weird facial hair and hairstyle, and he's always dressed in these kind of weird suits. 
And a lot of people thought that he was trying to imitate Oriental style, but it turned out he was actually doing his best imitation of German Kaiser style as a black man. And um, he brought a lot of this folkish German nationalism back with him. The ideas of, of Herder, uh, in particular, Johann Gottfried Herder uh, and his nationalism, but also the primary tutors that he had directly above him um, there in Germany were also big German nationalists and uh, kind of strange economists. And he just kind of brought their thought back whole hog and ended up getting a lot of this folkish nationalism that you see in critical race theory, where critical race theory regards racial cultures as folks the souls of black folk and black folks and white folks. And all this use of the word folks refers back to this German folk with a V uh, and the kind of nationalistic thought. His big tutors, by the way, were Heinrich von Trotsky, uh, Adolf, uh, Adolf Wagner. And those two are both huge German nationalists. And then Gustav von Schmoller, who has a weird tie to helping create the Frankfurt school. Um, and von Schmoller was an economist who had all these kind of very strange ideas about economics. And Du Bois basically repurposes his entire project in terms of race. But he's also very concerned, of course, with this um, Hegelian idea that he picked up there of the master-slave dialectic and the idea of a double consciousness being the, the slave having a double consciousness. What does it mean to be black in a white world? Um, and so he comes back with all of this you know, very uh, significantly. So we lay out then um, what his view is. Uh, I don't want to spoil kind of the big punchline, but um, I'll just read you a little bit of this paragraph, uh, just the end of it, actually, this one paragraph I have in here. When understood with awareness of his uh, racial folkish thought, however, the dialectical nature of his claim, this is Du Bois, is made apparent. Both Negro and American are national identities that exist in contradiction exactly in accordance with Hegel's master-slave dialectic. There's no understanding critical race theory without understanding its adoption of this simultaneously and dialectically imposed and self-imposed racial consciousness that has its philosophical origins in W.E.B. Du Bois and his adaptation of German nationalism and idealism. And so the fault... What what I'm really banging at here is that Du Bois is actually asking the question in the book when he's talking about double consciousness, the souls of black folk. Um, what he's actually talking about uh, is that when he, he says, he, he asks, is it possible? Let me find his exact phrasing. Um, if it, he's asking us if it's possible to be an American and a Negro at the same time, in his words, it says, uh, it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness. This is the very beginning of the book, by the way. This sense of always looking at one's self through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro. Two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. 
And then he goes on and even says he would not. What he says the history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to obtain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. See how Hegelian that is. In this merging, he wishes neither of the old selves to be lost. Because Alfhaven, he would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and Africa. He would not bleach his Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. Writing in 1903, he's not writing crazy talk here. He's just interpreting through folkish nationalism and Hegelian idealism what he's actually experiencing. But that's where we get this idea that when you understand that he means Negro and American as two national identities that are in dialectical opposition to one another, that what critical race theory is actually asking for is something different. So then it's not as surprising when you see that they're putting out things like the Black National Anthem being justified under the needs of a black American flag that has the African what, red, black, and green colors on it. Instead, uh, as a call why black nationalism has become such a kind of strange little artifact within critical race theory is that this is why and so um you, i hope you do read the book and the, i actually have a short digression here before i end the chapter about the similarities between critical race theory and nazism national socialism pretty important uh and then I summarize what critical race theory is and where it comes from. And the conclusion is just absolutely unavoidable. Critical race theory is just race Marxism. And I do this whole thing with the German and everything. We can therefore understand critical race theory for what it is, appealing to various ideas in bad German philosophy to facilitate our understanding. Critical race theory, Kritische Rassen theory, is this theoretical reason, Vernunft, used to contextualize all understanding for stand of the world, a racialized Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, scientific socialism for the process of achieving racial equity, Rassen uh, Socialismus, racial socialism, that will eventually produce racial justice, Rassen Communismus, Racial communism. That's it. Critical race theory is race Marxism, and its long term objective for itself is race centered communism. And then I turn to critical race praxis, explaining that the point, this is for the rest of the book, you know, we're getting along here, and you can read the book. Critical race praxis is how critical race theory operates. Um, I already said the key maxim here is critical race theory is as critical race theory does. The point of critical race theory is that it is trying to do in the very Marxian and Hegelian way uh, to fuse practice and theory into a single thing. Marx said that those were broken apart when the division of labor came into the world, very kind of theological claim, and that the point of their work is to fuse them back together to where there's no distinction, no separation between uh, theory and practice so that practice and moving in the world and acting in the world in accordance with critical race theory is the point of critical race theory. So the goal, the belief is that that will happen when people are actually fully racially conscious and others when they're fully critical race theorists. So the whole point of critical race theory is to raise racial consciousness, which is a critical consciousness of race, which is the parallel of class consciousness and Marxism to make you 
what Marx would have called socialist man. It is to make you a critical race theorist or a race socialist man, a race equitist, equitable man or whatever. Um, I characterize this as being literally the only thing that critical race theory does. And so uh, once I've said that, there's not really anything to say about what critical race theory and praxis really is, except to give some examples of how it works. So I'll just kind of read some section titles, won't go too deep. Divide, scoop up, and conquer, that's a section title. So the divide and conquer game that they play, they play this game over and over and over again. You'll see it basically everywhere, and I actually outline how they did it to create critical race theory out of critical legal studies. Um, critical race theory as a virus. You've heard the podcast, I think, here on New Discourses podcast, where I say, um, where I where I go through the paper titled "Women's Studies as a Virus" uh, and explain that critical race theory is meant to work off of a viral model. It is supposed to work in the sense of infecting institutions to turn them into critical race theory producing cells. Instead of like viruses, make your cell make more viruses instead of new cells or proteins or whatever. Uh, critical race theory infects a institution to turn it into a critical or a person to turn it into a thing that makes more critical race theorists. Um, then I talk about some of the techniques of critical race praxis. Mostly what I talk about here, other than kind of linguistic tricks and things, are and you know, the Mott and Bailey and the, all of that, uh, double meaning terms, very important. Um, things we've discussed over and over and over again here, so I don't want to dive into it. You can read the book. Uh, one of the things that I actually, um, the critical inversion of language is, is one of the things, one of the things that I actually dive into in some significance, though, is the three prongs of praxis, of, of actually practice, of critical race theory put into practice on people, and that it has these three goals, to, to drain people of moral authority, epistemic authority and psychological authority. So the draining of moral authority is to make you feel like a bad person for being racist or whatever. And there you could call people racist and you, until you control them. Draining epistemic authority is to make everybody else seem feel too stupid to be taken seriously or to take themselves seriously. Or to, so they say, you don't even understand this complicated theory, blah, blah, blah. You don't even understand uh, what racism means or what race really is or how it all works in a structural way. You don't understand structural thought. You don't understand blah, blah, blah. This is just a straight, you're not talking in terms of Marxian theory, so you're stupid. Trick that the Marxists always play, draining epistemic authority. And then the third is psychological authority, which is that they gaslight you. They lie. They distort. They bully to make you feel psychologically unfit to criticize them. And so these three key techniques are are how they actually proceed in practice. Um, I touch upon, in addition to that, I touch upon a very important idea about the you know invention of linguistic pseudo-reality and what a pseudo-reality is, and they create a pseudo-reality about race. And to get people to try to live in this, whether you want to call it pseudo-reality or hyper-reality, this false image, this matrix, uh, uh, where their upside-down inverted racial beliefs are taken for granted and that you operate from those. And then I explain that they do all of this, not just by inverting and manipulating language and having, um, you know, various linguistic tricks and, and bullying techniques, but they also rely heavily on, on, uh, ex post analysis and the ratio and a, and a racial, uh, petitio principi, which is, um, 
that they they assume they're that they they analyze the situation after the fact and claim that racism was the cause like every time that's how they call everything racist classic example that i've given in the past many 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 times two people enter a store white one white one black who do you help first if you help the white person you're racist because whatever if you help the black person you're racist because this other reason but when you experience this you just are on the end of whatever happened and so it whatever happened was racist so they're doing an ex post analysis they're they're doing the analysis after the fact and they're doing it in such a way that they've assumed that racism is going to be the conclusion from the beginning that goes back to that first key belief of critical race theory that racism is ordinary in society and permanent it's present in all interactions it's present in everything critical uh, or sorry robin d'angelo says the question is not did racism take place but how did racism manifest in the situation and so this is a psychological manipulation to conclude that everything is is racism, just like Marxists would do a manipulation to conclude that everything is the fault of capitalism. Everything here is the cause or the fault of racism. Everything they don't like is going to be said to uphold capitalism if it's Marxism or uh, racism if it's race Marxism or aka critical race theory. And then in chapter six, what can we do about critical race theory? Um, you know, don't let the lie come into the world through you uh, is one thing, but we really got to understand just how, you know, how do you fight this kind of thing? And, you know, I actually have limited answers to this. If we knew, we would have already gotten rid of it. Uh, people are figuring it out. It boils down, though, that there are two main types of approaches that I talk about. One are institutional approaches and the other are cultural. I can say that some of the, the institutional approaches are... Um, timely. I think I say that these are timely and cultural changes are timeless because uh, they're based in values. And so the institutional changes, you know, we have to go at it hard legally. I say that the Holy Grail, of course, is getting it labeled as a religion, not critical race theory specifically. Um, you know, John Wickwarder has done some good work on that. I've been doing work on that. Um, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Woke Inc., does some good work on that. Uh, it is a religion. Wokeness and communism both are religions. And by the time I'm done with this project, the world will understand that completely. Marxism in all of its forms, including identity Marxism, including uh, race Marxism and the form of critical race theory are religions. If the S Supreme Court of the United States recognizes that, that wokeness or Marxism of all types are a religion, it's game over for them. They have to command the state apparatus to get through the next stage of their history. You know, we've got freedom at stage four in the six stages of Marxist history. Stage five is a state administered, uh, whether it's socialist economy, if it's material stuff or racial equity program. If that's that's state mandated, it's state indoctrination in the schools, it's state mandated religion. It is a state religion throughout the entire state apparatus. That's illegal, according to the First Amendment. All it takes is classifying this obvious religion as a religion at the level of Supreme Court jurisprudence, and their whole program falls apart. They get protection as a religion, just like Scientology and other things have. On the other hand, as a result, they can't enforce their stuff through the state. But their entire program is to enforce their stuff through the state. You can't have socialism without state ownership by definition. And so it's curtains for them if it gets recognized as a religion. So that's kind of a holy grail 
uh, or Hail Mary or something to get it recognized as a religion, which should be actually very easy because it's blatantly a religion. You have a little bit of that argument here. Um, and then I talk about, you know, kind of these legislative things that people can do, why it should be banned, why those bills need teeth, etc. cetera. Uh, institutional changes like get this crap out. You need to understand that you're bringing communism into your program. It's not a good idea uh, or even worse. I talk about the ESG problem, environmental social governance scores and metrics that they use for investment portfolios that are dragging us through this. People are not going to want that exposed. That has to be fought. Um, and then I, I switch gears and I have some other suggestions as well. Practical terms. And I switched gears into this cultural changes. And I said, like I said earlier on the podcast, two main things leaning back into Americanism e pluribus unum is already the best diversity program on the planet. Uh, if you want, or even diversity eh, equity in terms of equal access, which is the lie they tell about what equity means, uh, and inclusion program on the planet. And so that, and then what are the essences of this Americanism? Common humanity, common sensibility. Talk about Thomas Paine's common sense and that we need a common sensibility to have something we can believe in as common sense. And we offer the common sensibility as an answer to Marcuse's so-called new sensibility, which contains intersectionality as a key component. Uh, and so we're going to overturn this to a anti-intersectional approach that's back to putting people on common ground where they can understand and communicate with one another. Uh, and we're going to favor freedom and liberty and teamwork and uh, truth and beauty and all these other great values. And the way that we're going to do that is through the Americanism or the Americanist value or goal really of decentralization of power. And um, that's kind of the, the, the biggest thing that I have to offer is kind of a long-term values-driven, anti-critical race theory, anti-Marxist agenda. Of course, the biggest thing you can possibly do if you want to defeat critical race theory is get it classified as a religion. And so I can't stress that um, hard enough just because I want to be fun. The very last word, speaking of the word enough in the book is the word enough. Uh, but I'll let you read the sentence on your own after you get the book. So that's an introduction to this new book I have coming out called Race Marxism. I've given away a lot of the goods, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you will consider getting it and reading all 100,000 words. I know that's a long read. It's not meant to be an easy read. There's a lot of philosophy to unpack. I could have written it far, far, far longer, probably five times as long to make it more digestible, but I think it's important to get this out there and we'll do the digestible stuff from there. And I want you to help me with that. I want you to read this and I want you to communicate these ideas as best you can and to research them further. And if I've got things uh, not quite right to help me correct them going forward in time. So I hope you will check the book out. I won't keep boring you with a kind of drawn out conclusion. The book is called Race Marxism. Uh, the truth about critical race theory and praxis. And um, I think it's going to be the first definitive guide on the subject written by somebody who actually understands it and that stands outside of it and is critical of it. I think you should get it. I think you should share it. I have obviously full disclosure. I wrote the damn book, so I have a financial stake in me saying that. But I think it, even if I, if I didn't write the book, having obviously also read the book, um, 
So I do hope that you will will consider the book and, and be interested in it and share it and get it. Uh, look forward to that being published by New Discourses. Um, you can find it on your favorite since we're publishing it through the Amazon platform, lacking most other options. You can find it on your favorite, Amazon.com, uh, in some formats. Someday I might read the thing. It's very long as an audiobook. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. So that is uh, the introduction to the book. I hope you'll get it. Race Marxism is the title. Uh, looking forward to hearing what you think of it. <laughs>